Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. We are all documentary filmmakers now. All of us. And we are all citizen journalists and we all have this power and we all have this responsibility to capture the world around us, to, to speak truth to power, to, to share the stories around us, in our families, in our lives. And I think that's the only way really to kind of put yourself on the map is to have a calling card is to say, this is what I'm going to do. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 109, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of documentary film, the Documentary Life podcast, and now the Independent Filmmaker's Essential Checklist course our free eight-part course designed to help you achieve financial stability, gain support, and effectively distribute your documentary film. Before we get started with our final segment of our Chris in Cambodia series, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to listen to these. I hope that you found value not only in the stories themselves, but in some of the oftentimes, shall we say, not-so-thinly-veiled attempts to couch these stories in some sort of doc filmmaking lessons. And to some degree, as I try and do with the documentaries that I've been making over in Asia since 2003, I hope that I've opened your hearts and minds up just a little more than they may have been before you'd listened to the show. And in this case, Maybe I've not only increased your knowledge of this tiny little pocket of the world over in Southeast Asia, but maybe, just maybe, you'll have interest in creating some of your own experiences over in Cambodia. And by the way, if you do, let me know and I can introduce you to some friends, some of whom you already heard here on the show. Lastly, I wanted to say that I've had a very enjoyable time creating these segments. It has allowed me to explore Cambodia, and in many ways even our own documentary film, in ways that I'd not done previously. It's been a joy to process some of my adventures, and as I just mentioned, in some ways, it's even helped with the film itself. Writing and producing these segments actually has helped me get back into the edit of Elvis of Cambodia. So thank you for taking the time to sit through my explorations of filming in Cambodia. I look forward to coming to a town near you and sharing the fruits of our labor, our documentary film, Elvis of Cambodia, with you. And if you'd like to keep up to date with our film's progress and to find out when and how you might be able to see the film, you can always go to our official film site at elvisofcambodia.com. All right, akunchran and chubkaneer badong tiktiet. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. I carefully load my camera and gear into the back of the tuk-tuk. I say carefully because my right arm has been killing me for the past three days. It seems that I developed a case of tendonitis, or shooter's elbow as I was calling it, from lugging all of this gear around from town to town. I gave Sister Setsuchara a hug, waved goodbye agreeing to meet up for dinner before I leave country, and I begin riding the tuk-tuk back into town. I need to hurry back because I need to grab some lunch, quickly shower, then head over to a cafe where I'm meeting up with some members of the U.S. Embassy. There is a grant that I'd like to inquire about before leaving town. I'd been doing a bit of this sort of thing this time out to Cambodia. 
meeting up with individuals and organizations that might in some way be interested in our film. Steph and I had done it to some extent early on in our last adventure, but after that first month, we hadn't been quite as diligent as our attention had really turned to the actual filming of our doc. I had made a conscious decision not to do that this time out. Over the course of the two months that I'd been back in Cambodia, any time that I'd been in Phnom Penh, I'd attempted to meet up with people and organizations. For instance, there was Cambodian Living Arts, a very well-known and respected arts organization in Cambodia. As was the case with the star of our film, roughly 90% of Cambodia's artists did not survive the time of the Khmer Rouge. It was CLA's mission to make sure that not all of Cambodia's artistic heritage was also lost, and they were focused on helping Cambodia's current talented build and develop careers in the arts through scholarships, fellowships, and other means of support. I had met up with CLA early in February and begun forging a relationship with them. It was important for us that we had the support of someone like a CLA because we felt that our missions both really aligned with one another and certainly with what we were doing with our own film. Increase awareness of a legacy that had been nearly destroyed as well as highlight the ways in which the arts and culture in Cambodia was beginning to thrive again, no doubt nurtured by an organization like a CLA. A partnership with CLA would not only give us some official recognition from a very well-respected Cambodian organization, but it would also, even by association alone, perhaps open doors to other important avenues like future funding, additional film subjects, or film screenings in the country. I'd also met up with an executive director of Bopana Center, an audiovisual resource center based in Phnom Penh. Bopana was founded by Cambodia's first and only Cambodian filmmaker to be nominated for an Oscar, Mr. Riti Pan. Since what is, is deeply rooted in Cambodian identity. Riti actually plays an important part in our documentary, providing gravitas and heartfelt context to the horrors of Cambodia's more recent history, as well as allowing us to see into some of the magic of the artistry of our singer subject, Sun Si Samut. You spend your entire life to listen to Sensemut's song. Of course, Ritti's name alone could only be a good thing for our film. But similar to what we felt about CLA, we felt that there was much in common with what Bopana was doing and we were trying to do with Elvis. Bopana was saving the memories of yesteryear and making new ones for today's Cambodia. They were doing this through the collection of a massive archive they were making available to students, journalists, and travelers alike. Furthermore, they were teaching Cambodia's youth how to tell stories with cameras and audio recording devices. I don't have to further explain how or why it might be beneficial for us to also try and form a partnership with a Bopana Center. Hours later, after meeting up with the U.S. Embassy to introduce our project to them and to hear how we might best apply for one of their grants, I found myself sitting across from a woman around my age, Sochiet, who had learned of our project from one of the members of the aforementioned Bopana. She was thrilled about our film, being a professed lover of all things Sinsi Samut, and she also knew the Sin family. She was not only excited to hear about our film, but she was eager to point us in the direction of one or two people who she felt could significantly help us move our film along, who might be interested in directly contributing financially to our film because of their own deep love for our subject matter. 
one person in particular, was not the type of person we would very easily have access to, and she was going to be able to connect us directly to him. So here was someone who had been introduced to us shortly after we'd met with someone else, and she was now connecting us to another someone else who could be of potential great significance to our film. I kind of chuckled to myself. Yes, this was what was known as networking. Something I was well aware of, somewhat versed in, but not nearly enough versed in, because I had just had my own hang-ups with, you know, networking. It always seemed so disingenuous to me, this term. But over the past few years, realizing that if I had wanted to make a life of this doc filmmaking thing, or if I wanted people to actually see my films, I had worked hard at getting over my anxieties or hang-ups with this word. Realizing that I was just holding myself and my projects back with my own nonsense. Networking didn't have to be this icky, slimy sort of thing that happened in lame cosmopolitan New York settings or on the rooftops of fancy LA bars. It could actually take the shape of far more agreeable, even dare I say, pleasant forms. This cafe meetup, just the latest example. So as I paid my bill and bid goodbye to my new friend and made my way back to my guest house, I resolved to do even more of this sort of thing, knowing that our film would keep getting better for it. I'm back at the Golden Bridge guest house and I am looking over all of my belongings. I've been packing to leave this country where I've spent the last two months filming on our documentary, Elvis of Cambodia. I leave for Phnom Penh International Airport in a couple of hours, and I've managed to decrease the weight of one of my bags ever so slightly since earlier in the day I'd sold my light pro gear feather camera crane to a young Cambodian filmmaker. I slowly pick up one of the bags, weighing it with my portable luggage scale. Another bit of pain shoots up my right arm. Damn just over by 0.3 kilograms. I was going to have to leave another something else behind. My phone pings me. It's Kaizuka. He's going to be a little late picking me up. His work out in Kampong Spu had gone longer than expected and traffic was going to be pretty bad getting back into the city. And he wouldn't be able to join me for dinner and maybe that I should just get it myself. Good old Phnom Penh. I finished tucking the last bits of my camera safely into the camera bag. Good old Cambodia. I stand up and survey all of my bags around me. I half laugh, exasperated at the thought of having to drag all of these heavy items down four flights of stairs, load them into Kaizuka's car, take them out again, and then truck them all the way through Phnom Penh International. And it is then for seemingly the zillionth time in the past few months, since I first began this journey in December in snowy Rochester, New York, and set out for my three-week work gig throughout the Pacific Northwest and the Southwest of the US, and then onto two full and incredible months in Cambodia working on the film. It is then, for the hundredth millionth time, I make a mental note that I am absolutely positively, there can be no doubt about it, going to have to find a way to pack lighter the next time I make it out.
to Cambodia. Thank you again for tuning in to today's Chris in Cambodia. This was the final segment in the series. If you've missed any of the prior segments, you can find all of them, and you can also check out behind the scenes stills and video of my time in Cambodia by going to our website at thedocumentarylife.com. Something I wanted to mention before continuing on with today's show. You've probably noticed that we're playing around with some pretty cool fresh sounds on this season of TDL. And I'd like to thank Music Vine for supplying us with those cool fresh sounds. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Music Vine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. If you're anything like me, when it comes to doc film preparations, checklists are an essential part of that preparation. Whether it's putting together a gear list, storyline notes for an edit, or gathering materials for a grant application, checklists are very helpful in ensuring that we're prepared for whatever may lie ahead in our doc journeys. Which is why Steph and I have put together a very special offering for you, a free eight-chapter course we're calling the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. In it, we outline the essential areas you need to build or establish the non-creative, or as we prefer to refer to them, business aspects of your documentary film. We believe that given the right strategy and insight, every doc filmmaker can achieve their goals and intentions with their films, that there is money out there for every project, and that every film can be met by an active, eagerly anticipating audience, and that includes yours. This course will take you closer to that outcome. To enroll in the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist course, just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. It's free, and just as we do here on the show, this eight-chapter checklist course will inspire and inform you on your documentary film journey. We're speaking today with doc filmmaker Billy Corbin, who is one of three gentlemen behind the film production company Rack on Tour. Billy, uh, welcome to the Documentary Life podcast. We're excited to have a conversation with you today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely, absolutely. So as part of an intro, Billy, I know, of course, early, early on, you were initially a child actor, so you worked a bit in showbiz, but at some point you decided to get behind the camera. But instead of fiction narrative, you went the nonfiction route. Maybe you can share a little bit of your journey uh, up to, to documentary films, like how that came to be, and certainly why you chose nonfiction over fiction. Well, I was fortunate enough to have worked with some pretty wonderful directors when I was, as you put it, a, a child actor. and <laughs> Hashtag child one, actor. <laughs> you know, what, what, one of whom was Ron Howard yeah. himself, himself a recovering child actor. Yes. And um, we, I worked on the, the film Parenthood. Uh, which uh, I think we were shot in about 1988 in the <laughs> Orlando area in central Florida. Uh, it was a pretty wonderful movie with a ridiculous cast. I yeah. mean, it was Steve Martin, 
and Mary Steenburgen and Rick Moranis and Keanu Reeves, jo- Joaquin Phoenix, who was then known as Leaf Phoenix. Yes, I that's mean, right. <laughs> it was it was pretty spectacular. And and for a little kid, I was like eight or nine years old. It was a, a remarkable experience. And to see that hmm. happening, uh, no, at that point, I was oh, 10. I was 10 when we shot it. And okay. to, to see that happening in, in Florida was pretty exciting. Ron Howard was really rather incredible uh, because he was a he was a director's director he was an actor's director he was like he was sort of all things to all people mm. i mean he he would come on set in the morning and greet everybody by name he knew yeah. everybody's name he was just he was just lovely and it was a family affair like his whole family was there his mm. brother was in the movie his dad was in the movie his daughters were <laughs> were in the movie i think his wife had and some of them were just cameos like just a quick shot or whatever but everybody was kind of there and around it was just a wonderful environment and wow. uh, and he was uh, he was quite an inspiration as just a, a figure and a man and a director and so uh, that's really what planted the seed that's wild uh, for me um, was sort of seeing that like wow he was able to to parlay this extraordinarily successful career as a child actor and then transitioning really into an adult actor you know by the time happy days uh, had ended and then and now is this incredibly successful director and really with my friends in Miami we had always been as I think a lot of young filmmakers are you know interested just doing backyard movies you know with your parents home video cameras yeah so it's it's, it was a pretty common or pretty typical I think journey for me there Um, but I I realized pretty quickly that that uh, as as fun and successful as as my young acting career was I was much more interested in in uh, what was happening behind the scenes and and the entire process because I realized that you know actors are like the last ones, uh, you know, on set in the morning and the first ones first to ones leave. to leave the, the complete yeah. opposite of the PA. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, I want to know what else is happening here. I want to know how how this all starts before we get here and what happens after we leave. And I was just interested in the in the mechanics of it. Um, in 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 and I knew that that that's really. If I was going to continue in this industry, that would be my trajectory. And I found like-minded friends uh, in Miami. And so, you know, David Sipkin, one of my producing partners, I've known uh, literally since nursery school. Wow. And our <laughs> third partner, Alfred Spellman, I met in television production class in middle school mm. uh, at Highland Oaks, Highland Oaks Middle in North Miami Beach, Florida. So, um, yeah, so like these are just longtime friendships and, 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 and filmmaking partnerships. And we all sort of feel – very specific roles uh, in the company and, and creatively and otherwise. Alfred handles the business. Um, I handle the creative. Dave now runs our post-production, which really is where, you know, in, in the, the life cycle of a documentary, that's where you spend most of your time. It I certainly think, is. It's kind of where it gets written in many ways. Exactly. So, so, so someone has to really oversee that. And, and, you know, that's the thing about our boutique operation in Miami beach is that we make everything by hand. Mm. And so, you know, the three of us really, really put a lot of care and attention into our docs, sometimes for better or worse, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and so, um, but that's really how we got into doc filmmaking. It's yeah. a good, good transition, uh, because you know, our, uh, path was, uh, as filmmakers, you know, I, I studied screenwriting and, and political science, uh, and theater and at the university of Miami where, so that was my, my triple major. And I, so I was really going and, and I, w- I want to say for the record that that, my screenwriting classes and playwriting classes were the best editing classes I ever took. Uh, they were, yeah. yeah, they were, they were the best cinematography classes I ever took. They yeah. were the best directing classes I ever took. Really the best filmmaking classes I ever took were my writing 
classes because I think as soon as you understand storytelling and structure, um, as soon as you know those rules, you can then break them, break them if you want. But I was a fan, very much a fan of nonfiction um, because, you know, something we learned very quickly growing up in Florida, that truth is far stranger than fiction. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so Florida had always been this extraordinary resource uh, in part untapped for characters and stories. Yeah. And so we were always interested in the real. We wanted to st kind of start to move uh, towards digital. There's something about digital at that, especially at that time, this is pre-HD, yeah. you know, we didn't necessarily have the, the cinema lenses, you know, it didn't look so hot at right, the time. Right. And People I, shooting with the Canon XL1s and the VX1000s. Yeah. yeah, and so I was like, you know, even if you're not a technophile or a filmmaker, you know the difference between digital video and film. It Completely. doesn't have the, yeah, it doesn't have the warmth. I mean, even even people who just don't know the 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 technical specs of it would still go, this doesn't feel like Mary Poppins. Right, you know, this right. doesn't feel like, you know, you just know it doesn't have that feel. I said, so it seems that the the best use of digital video to me, it seemed, because all the narrative and scripted stuff, you know, was all where it worked. All incorporated the format into the storytelling. Of course, of course. And then found footage would come into play a few years later. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Blair, Blair Witch was found footage. So it, it, it really, they literally, uh, the storylines themselves, the concepts were were really bound to the format. Completely. So, yeah, so to me, I felt like, well, so if you're not going to do something like that narratively, uh, you know, you, it seems best suited to doc. Mm. So I, it just struck me that like it would lend itself really well to doc filmmaking. So we started to hear from friends who we grew up with uh, in Miami who were going to University of Florida about this case in which an exotic dancer oh, yeah. had accused a couple of fraternity men in uh, at the University of Florida, uh, uh, or one of them, I should say, of of sexually assaulting her in a private room after a big brother, little brother pledge event. And the entire night's events had been captured on video. Right. And the videotape, digital video, mind you, on a consumer camera they had bought, uh, one of the fraternity brothers bought at Best Buy uh, in Gainesville uh, the day of the event. Uh, that was released publicly. Yeah. Uh, as part of the evidence in the case and our, our very open sunshine laws, our public record laws here. And so here was a story that itself involved digital video, yeah. you know, in, in the story, in the evidence of the story. <laughs> and Alfred and I had just had this conversation and yeah. we were looking to, to pursue something in nonfiction filmmaking. And so it almost happened accidentally. We, yeah, we, it sounds like we, it. Yeah, we put some some money together with some angel investors. We took leaves of absence from from school. <laughs> uh, we literally got in a car, got a month to month lease at a you know rental apartment, um, three bedroom rental apartment in Gainesville, and bought a camera and started filming this documentary in spring. So we got the idea to do this in January of two thousand. Yeah. We in Gainesville filming by about April, I think, of 2000. And in January of 2001, we premiered at Sundance. That's right. That's right. As, at the time, the youngest filmmakers in the in the history of the of the festival. And and for us, 
I mean, as filmmakers, and I would think for most documentary filmmakers, a pretty quick turnaround, you know, from inception, <laughs> yeah, from inception to Sundance debut, it was pretty, it was up, it was, a. we didn't realize it at the time, you know, but when you're caught up in the whirlwind, it's tough to, it's tough to see. But in hindsight, I could never imagine that, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of schedule Look, uh, again. I, I want to stop you right there because I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I, I don't imagine... I don't know how often you you get a chance to talk about raw deal or question of consent any longer, but I do want to say it's when I first heard of you guys, and obviously it immediately put you on the map, premiering at Sundance in two thousand one. And uh, the thing with this film, of course, outside of the controversy, all the controversy surrounding the subject matter and, and the film itself, is that it. it for the longest, 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 longest time, it didn't get picked up for any kind of distribution. Nobody would touch it. It just kind of sat on the proverbial shelf, right? So what I want to hear from you, Billy, I'd love to hear, how was that for you? Was it deflating in any way? And how do you continue on as a doc filmmaker knowing that, wow, overnight, seemingly, you know, we made it into Sundance. We premiered at Sundance and now nobody even wants to what touch our film now? So how do you go on as a doc filmmaker in that situation? It's pretty terrible. I don't I don't get to talk about it that often. Um, but it's all a matter of public record. We we had kind of the the quintessential first time filmmaker Sundance dream turned nightmare. Exactly. Um, with with a distributor, uh, it was well publicized at the time that that Artisan Entertainment uh, had picked up the documentary. Um, every year, Artisan had like a a big acquisition. They had like one acquisition yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at Sundance. You know, they, they did uh, Pi, they did Blair Witch, they did, uh, I think, Chuck and Buck, um, and eventually they later did um, Darren Aronofsky's follow-up, mm. um, which was uh, a Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. And um, so, but this was sort of in the waning days of Artisan. Um, yeah. and, and so this was their last quote unquote Sundance acquisition. And the truth is, is that they, we, they didn't really ever acquire the movie. There was like a deal memo. Uh, they never paid us for it. They never executed the long form contract and they never released the movie. And all, all throughout the rest of the year of 01, we started hearing that the WWE was going to buy them. They, they had, they had started working on like this dirty dancing sequel and a, and a Punisher movie with Marvel. Like they, they did a Van Wilder. Like there was like, it's, it, it seemed that they were shifting from the art house, you know, oh, thing wow. to a more commercial venture. And they were looking to, they had a failed IPO. It really seemed like this was like a company in trouble. And then we started yeah. to do our, our due diligence after the fact um, about the, the, the management at the company, which turned out to be some pretty nefarious people with really bad reputations. And in a, in a, in a pre, uh, you know, social media world, yeah, you know, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. you know, where, where you don't really have any power back in those days, filmmakers, we were making movies for eight people. Yeah. And who were yeah. those eight people? They were the gatekeepers. They were the acquisitions executives yeah. ex- at the indie distribution companies or the mini majors. And that was it. And if they didn't like your movie, it was over. You were, you know, that was, you know, so now you can literally make a movie for anybody and everybody in your pocket and distribute it internationally from said pocket. And mm. that that's the democratization, not only of production, but now of distribution. Right. And in, in those days, we had just experienced the democratization of production, but not this is a pre YouTube, you know, <laughs> world, yeah. <laughs> pre iPhone uh, world. And so, um, 
you know, we we were at the mercy of, of these people. And as it turned out, pretty, uh, uh, like I said, nefarious people. They told us by August of 01, when they were, they, they were trying to now sell the company to Lionsgate, they told us that A, they weren't paying us for the movie, B, they weren't distributing the movie, and C, they would not release the movie free and clear back to us. <laughs> um, My nightmare. told us that in one phone call. Wow. And it, it was a nightmare. And it was like, wait a second, this movie that we made with our own hands, we raised the money from friends and family, we went, and it just turned into a terrible situation. We even desperately, yeah. out of desperation, offered to pay them yep. for the movie. Yep. And it wasn't yep. to buy the movie back, it was just to clear the chain of title. Yeah. Because there, there had been all this publicity that Artisan acquired it, so we couldn't shop it anywhere else unless Artisan basically said, oh yeah, we didn't acquire it. They have it, you know, they own it free and clear. Right, so, right. This whole thing was just a terror, and we, we, we resisted as much as we possibly could um, from from litigating it because you know as my grandfather taught me the only people who win litigation are the lawyers um, yeah. And so we were but when they when they turned down our money when we when we scraped up some money together to offer them basically ransom you know ransom uh, to, to pay for our own movie back you know that we had made and financed um, they, and they rejected us we had no choice and and we found a lawyer in Miami who was willing to really take the ride with us and and, and and we and we sued them. Yep. And we, long story even longer, we eventually not only won, but the judge gave us our attorney's fees as well. Oh, wow, that so, doesn't happen often. <laughs> um, like you said, it was the movie that like just exploded and then disappeared. And um, <sighs> we and and my grandfather finally came to me. I was like, Bill, you're you just. He goes, you guys are producers. Go produce. Mm. He's like, you're not supposed to produce lawsuits, and you can't sit around and 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 you know wait till your one movie is liberated. You know, your wife goes, you got to go and produce something. And so that final, I never forgot that. It finally, in about you know, by now it's like oh two oh three oh four, kind of spurned us into action. And that's when we started to work on a project called City Made of Snow, yeah. which we later changed the name to. Uh, to cocaine, cocaine cowboys, cowboys and- yeah. <laughs> one of your mantras as documentary filmmakers i think i've seen this pinned to your to your twitter account one of your mantras is a great story well told we talk about storytelling and what makes a great story obviously all the time in our conversations inevitably the question how do i know if i will have a great story and if i do how do i best serve it that comes up right that comes up a lot a lot what is it that you billy or what are you guys looking for in a story and how do you then best serve that story as doc filmmakers i apply this test which is it's not foolproof but it is idiot proof meaning any of us can 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 apply it um although it might not always work for you um i call it uh r a s and that is relevance access style and so step 1 in that process is relevance when someone says here's an idea for a documentary or you get an idea for a documentary or someone says this is the best idea ever for a documentary the first question i ask myself is who gives a shit mm. So as much as I love what we do and, and a lot of our projects are labors of love, they have to be if you're going to spend a year plus, you know, immersing yourself in, in a story or a world or, or dealing with, with real people. But uh, you have to ask yourself, is there going to be an audience for this after blood, sweat and tears and hopefully somebody else's money has been invested in this? You know, like it, it will. And it doesn't have to be, you know, for mass audiences, but any audiences, you know, will somebody be interested in this story? Right. So that's one um step two uh is access yeah. um 
And uh, access to me is the secret to life. You know, uh, what do they say? It's not what you know, it's who you know, mm. you know? So, so access to what? Access to you everything, dude. I mean, money, an idea, interview subjects, equipment, uh, skilled labor, you know, like editors and, you know, motion graphics people, mm. access to locations, access to a script, access, I mean, you, you name it, access to anything. And so the last thing in RAS is style. It's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And, uh, you know, why we say we serve the story, we are slaves to the story and, and devising an aesthetic that will, that will best and hopefully in a most entertaining fashion, um, uh, you know, tell this story in the most compelling uh, way. And it also, that's also part of selling you too, and why you are the only filmmaker who could tell this story, because you have a way of telling it. Uh, you have the access, you have a, a style that is going to be indispensable in, in translating and communicating this story to an audience. So that's, that's my kind of rules. RAS, you know, is, is this relevant? Do we have the access necessary to pull it off? And how would we tell this story? There's a saying, never meet your heroes because they'll break your heart. From the moment I remember, I wanted to be a baseball player. It was the American dream. I got kicked off the team for smoking weed. It was a disaster. My plan was go into medicine. The Belize School of Medical and Performing Arts. What is Florida about? It's about vanity and sex. It was a perfect place for the anti-aging movement. Especially down here in Miami. Everyone things now, now, now. There's almost no regulations. You'd have people who pretended to be doctors giving all types of medical advice. He had a white lab coat that said Dr. Tony Bosch. He had a stethoscope around his neck. Yeah, I assumed he was a doctor. Speaking of being approached with a great story, there was a certain former Major League Baseball player that approached you with a great story. Of course, his name was Alex Rodriguez. And ironically enough, he approached you and your team about, um, about a pretty major story at the time. Maybe you would find out later on that he had some ulterior motives to, for setting up that meeting with you guys. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, there was a great story to be told. Why don't you share a little bit about that and, and allow that to tee us up into Screwball, your latest documentary film? Well, the first thing I have to say is thank you for using the word ironic correctly. Um, it's, I would have to think, I don't mean to be condescending, but I, I have to think that it is just in general, I, I, my experience and perhaps yours, one of the most incorrectly used words. In, uh, I mean, in, I blame Alanis Morissette. <laughs> I always blame the Canadians. I yes, think. that's um, right. Blame so Canada. <laughs> we should put a, a tariff on Alanis Morissette songs. But um, <laughs> I will. But I, and I think that's true because I don't think she used ironic correctly once, once. In, her, <laughs> in, her, in, in her song of the same title. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but you used it dead on because how it is not what you would have expected to happen that in November of 2013, uh, in the midst of, of this high profile Major League Baseball doping scandal and in the <laughs> midst of his arbitration, uh, because Alex Rodriguez was the only player of, I think, about 14 that were uh, uh, caught in the dragnet of the biogenesis uh, steroid scandal. He was the only one who appealed his um, suspension, and why not? It was the, the longest in the history of the game, so right. nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's worth and, uh, a shot. <laughs> yeah, figured out nothing to lose, you know. And But he was right in the middle of it, and I got a call from his publicist, who I knew from University of Miami alumni circles, and uh, he, he had said that Alex Rodriguez was interested in meeting with my producing partner, Alfred Spellman, and I to discuss, these were his words, a the possibility of making a tell-all documentary. <laughs> Incredible. 
and incredible and ironic uh, because that yes. is the last person you would expect uh, to, to, to make that call. To and, tell and, all of anything. <laughs> yeah. And as it turns out, uh, that, that proved correct. Uh, we went to lunch with him and he just lied to us for about an hour plus straight, um, which to be fair, he was doing with everybody and everything in his life. He was yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to lunch with him in a very... Uh, how should I put it? I thought we were going to meet at his private office in Coral Gables, but it turns out we had lunch at the Power Lunch Spot, the most high visibility restaurant in all of Coral Gables, oh, which is wow. a, a very affluent um, municipality adjacent to the city of Miami and, in fact, the home of the University of Miami and Alex Rodriguez Field, in fact, that he donated. Oh, um, boy. And so um, – because of that, and because of the popularity of our ESPN 30 for 30s, particularly the ones uh, the, the U, U, right, right, yeah, and the U part two. Well, the U part two hadn't come out yet, but um, the U, um, the proximity to the University of Miami campus really, um, I should say, ensured that or maximized the potential that I would be recognized. Certainly as well. can't be overlooked. That's right. <laughs> so, so, so if people like, who are these guys meeting with Alex Rodriguez? It was bound to be somebody in the restaurant going, Oh, that, you know, that's the guy that directed the U. Yeah. You know? So those are documentarians. And so, um, it was, it, it, it was very clear that we were kind of on display there and it, it should not, uh, have escaped anyone's attention that the person who put the meeting together was in fact Alex's publicist. Yeah. So, um, and so it was leaked to page six and that Alex was shopping his story around and had this, this meeting at this restaurant with, with the 30, you know, the 30 for 30 filmmakers. Guys, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but listen, I, I didn't, I, I knew from that meeting that Alex was a really compelling character. Yeah. Really, really interesting guy. And despite the fact that, that, uh, he had been less than truthful with us, I thought all the more, reason to interview him, you know, to, to be able to have an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, to, to examine him, so to speak. Yeah. And that was not meant to be, um, they, they basically, you were, they were not really legitimately interested in, in doing a documentary, <laughs> even though I, I pursued them, um, throughout half the following year after the, the, um, uh, arbitration was resolved and in fact reduced to an entire season yeah. and not the, yeah. the 200 plus games he had originally been suspended for. And so it, it never worked out, but amazingly, um, less than a year after Alex had reached out, we get a call from a friend of Tony Bosch, who was the oh. fake doctor, was the steroid, uh, the provider of steroids and black <laughs> testosterone and human growth hormone to these players, among them Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, uh, Amelki Cabrera, Bartolo Colon, Ryan Braun, etc. Um, and he wanted to meet with us to discuss the possibility of doing a documentary. So ridiculous. It was the same message, basically. And, and Alfred uh, and, and he was on his way to federal prison at that time. <laughs> um, we did have to back burner that. But several months after Tony Bosch reached out, I got an email from Tim Elfrank, uh, formerly uh, the editor at the New Tom, Miami New Times yeah. and now at Washington Post. And he had written a book about the scandal, um, a wonderful book called Bloodsport. And he or co co-authored, I should say, with Gus Garcia Roberts. And Tim said, I got a call from Porter Fisher. Porter <laughs> Fisher was the whistleblower in the biogenesis scandal who had stolen the documents, brought them to Miami New Times and exposed this steroid ring. And um, Porter Fisher asked to get in touch with me to discuss the possibility of doing a documentary about it. So I'm not a – I've said this many times, but it's true. I'm not a spiritual guy, but I, I said to Alfred – The universe Dave, is telling us something? <laughs> yeah. I said – I mean the three 
key figures in this international steroid scandal, one of the biggest scandals in the history of professional baseball, yeah. all independently reached out to us. And, and out, some, somebody is trying to tell us to, that we need to, to pursue this, this story. And, and, and Tony got out of prison. We interviewed him. We interviewed Porter. Yeah. Um, we started to put screwball together. Now, Al Alfred's uh, joke is that um, when you get out of prison in Florida, your first call is to your mom. Your second call is to rack and tour. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, I mean, it's absolutely critical. And it's it's the second of three sort of, um, of your acronym to deciding if a story is is, is going to be worthy of, of production for you guys. And it's accessibility. Oh, yeah. And you had access to these key major characters. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we found it very relevant. We thought it was obviously it involves the highest paid baseball player of all time yeah. of America's pastime, you know, and, and so um, we thought that it was very relevant. Um, we, we now had the the access. Um, yeah. So our RAS was, you know, so far so good. Yep. Um, and and um, we also thought that that the you know, what, what made it relevant, too, is that is that you had this, these marquee names, but these multi-million dollar baseball players were really uh, supporting characters in yeah, this story. They yeah. were they were really collateral damage. And the truth was, the way that we saw it was that um, the highest paid, the career of the highest paid baseball player in history, a man who generated well over $400 million over the course of his career, affected <sighs> effectively ended over a $4,000 debt between a cocaine addicted fake doctor and his fake tan addicted steroid patient. And so that to us was that this was ultimately an extraordinary tale of Florida fuckery. And one of these sort of only in Miami kind of stories that was like Elmore Leonard or Carl Hyacin or Coen Brothers-esque, it was like a botched heist <laughs> we were like we, we were like freebasing florida fuckery with completely this one. complete and that's and, how you choose to tell the story this thing plays like a thriller doesn't it i would say like a coen brothers thriller <laughs> like, like a tongue-in-cheek like dark comedy kind of approach that's really what we it is you know like when we embark upon any of our documentaries we say what genre is this because that's, uh, the, that's the wonderful thing about documentaries about nonfiction filmmaking oh yeah. now now more than ever is that Docs are not a genre. Docs are a style of filmmaking. They sure not, are. If you you can make a documentary in any genre That's of right. cinema that you can think of. I mean, you can make a musical, you can make a sports comedy, you can make a love story, you can make a sci-fi documentary, you can make an action documentary. I mean, you name a, a genre that a film that you love and you could point to a documentary that's not only a wonderful example of that genre but is a seminal film in the <laughs> genre that is that is one of the greatest films in that genre and is and just happens to be a documentary. Well, as we wrap up here, Billy, I'll kind of say it's a great segue into this idea of being a self-entrepreneur. It's something that we talk a lot about. It's critical these days that doc filmmakers, I think, view themselves as self-entrepreneurs. And I think it's something you guys have been championing in your own way for a long time. And so I'd say to you, are there, can you give me a couple of practical tips for the doc filmmaker and how we can best embody this idea of, of self-entrepreneurship as a doc filmmaker? Oh, there's no question. In fact, when I taught um, teaching that class, I, I called it Hustling 101. There it you go. My, That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, nobody's going to promote you like you promote you. No one knows what you're you're capable of more than you do. You know, having an agent, you know, doesn't really help. But 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 having a calling card 
really does help. Um, and, and you want to be known for something. You know, we made a conscious decision after Sundance, uh, after we did about 60 interviews in five or six days, where the last question always was, now that you've like had a Sundance splash, are you guys going to New York or LA? And we're like, well, we're going to go home to Miami. And, <laughs> and for several reasons. First, well, that's why they call it home, because it's where you go and you're done with other shit. Number <laughs> yeah. one, you, know, you go home. You know. Number two, we had been working so hard for a year on this doc, we didn't really know what we were doing next. That was a mistake, too. You know, <laughs> when, when you're a young indie filmmaker, you kind of you do one project at a time. Now we have like five or six, you know, yeah. now that we're a, a company, you know, a studio, so to speak. So um, back in that, we just didn't know what was next. But we also knew that we didn't want to be three more schmucks peddling our wares in New York or L.A. Yeah. Um, because then you're just like everybody else, you know, and, and we knew that Miami was this extraordinary untapped resource, at least in nonfiction filmmaking, certainly in literature and other genres and journalism, you know, the Florida man journalism that's burgeoned in recent years. You know, it, it, people knew Florida was an interesting place, but yeah. but in nonfiction filmmaking, it hadn't really been been done before. And in fact, it had really been done best by outsiders like Nick Broomfield and the Eileen Wuornos documentaries. That's for right. Example. Absolutely. Yeah. So we wanted to sort of do it internally. We wanted to be the Miami guys yep. so that when people in New York or L.A. you know, got a call from us or whatever, that they would be, oh, those are the Miami guys. Yeah. And so our next project was Cocaine Cowboys. And, and so the original title, the temporary working title was City Made of Snow, yeah. which is a much more elegant sort of nonfiction it is, it title. Is, yeah. But then we realized that we wanted to eat. And, <laughs> and we realized that you can't go into a bank and endorse the back of a New York Post cover about your Sundance movie and cash that. So we knew we all wanted to be working filmmakers. Let me tell you, that that is the measure of success in this industry. It is not money. It is not critical acclaim. It is not awards. Measure of success is you get to work again, okay? Because that, that means you are hustling and people are watching your shit and interested in what you do next. And so that's the measure of success. And it was just for us, it was like, well, it's like if you build it, they will come. We had faith that we were more in touch with real people and the marketplace than people living in a vacuum of ideas were. And so I think that's it. You have to trust your instincts. You have to find the stories around you. You have to acknowledge the fact that you now have, everybody listening to this, has in their pocket the most powerful tool, the most powerful weapon ever devised in history, the the best camera I could have dreamed of having when I was a kid, yep, you know, and, that's right. and you we wish that we had had this. <laughs> Which, oh, my, are you kidding? I'd be dead or in prison. If yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so so I'm almost glad I didn't have it. But but, you know, I, to quote Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. So yeah. you have to you have to yield it responsibly. But we are all documentary filmmakers now, all of us. And we are all citizen journalists and we all have this power and we all have this responsibility to capture the world around us, to, to speak truth to power, to, uh, you know, to, to share the stories uh, around us in our families, in our lives. And I think that's the only way really to kind of put yourself on the map is to have a calling card is to say, this is what I'm going to do. I guess my point is look for these stories and these opportunities and this access around you and, and come up with a, you know, you want to be the Miami filmmaker. You want to be, you know, that, that was part of our gamble here. Like yeah. We were going to invest in our geography as being part of our brand building. And, you know, we wanted to be like Kevin Smith is in New Jersey you know, like M. Night Shyamalan is in, in, in Philly, like, you know, uh, 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 Barry Levinson and, and David Simon and, uh, you know, and, and John Waters are to Baltimore, Baltimore you know, yeah. or, you know, and 
Robert Rodriguez and Rick Linklater in Austin. In Austin, like, right. <laughs> you like, you know, Spike Lee and Scorsese in New York. And so I say, look for these opportunities. Yep. You know, be smart about it. Take some chances. They're not always going to pay off. Uh, God knows. Um, but it's the, it's really, you know, it's almost like, what do they say? The the, the only way to win is to play, yeah. you know? And, and so you, and you've got to take some, some chances in order, in order to do that. And it's not easy. I totally understand that to get to just to where we are, you know, almost 20 years in where we're making a living doing this. And I'm acutely aware of what a blessing it is to be in America in the 21st century, making a living, doing something that you, that you love, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. But but I, I but we did we got here by by taking by taking some chances and and identifying what we thought were good stories things that we could reach out and touch that we that we had access to and coming up with being I, I hate to be sort of like to sound cynical about it but to to say like I want to build a brand for myself and build a name for myself you you can you have an opportunity to make you know it, it's what you books used to be unfortunately mm. you know like you. You people now look for the set, for the documentary about something as opposed to going to the library to look for a book. So you have a chance to say, oh, I'm going to make a, the, the documentary, you know, underline capital T, capital H, capital E, the documentary about a subject that people are going to pursue. And and in order to do that, it has to be something that you have access to. It has to be something that you're close to, that you understand, that that is accessible and that you know how to tell. And so that's why I say look in your hometown, look in your community, look in your <clears throat> In your own family, you know, and and um, and and hopefully you'll find something that will that will help to uh to 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 put you on the map, and that'll be most importantly worth hustling for. We've been speaking with doc filmmaker Billy Corbin, the filmmaker behind the likes of Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, Cocaine Cowboys, and the Thirty for Thirty, The U, and of course his latest documentary, Screwball. Billy, how can we see Screwball? Uh, it's available now, video on demand. So wherever uh, you you rent or buy digital video, iTunes, Amazon, etc. Brilliant. And we will have links to those up, of course, in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to trailers for the other films that we've spoken about in the episode. Man, Billy, thank you for taking the time to come on The Documentary Life. This has been uh, an incredible conversation that I think is going to, let's just say, inform and inspire a lot of doc filmmakers that'll be listening to this. Thank you so much. Well, I can't thank you enough for inviting me. I don't often get to talk about... Uh, doc stuff you know it's very often about the subjects themselves and the kind of irreverent world we live in here in florida but i really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk about something that i love so much thank you chris don't forget if you're interested in our free eight-part course the independent doc filmmakers essential checklist course go to the documentarylife.com courses thanks again for listening we'll see you in two weeks time doc lifer